three gifts, actually, that I'd like to bring to you, three gifts that come from the book of Ephesians. And uh, this sermon, I, I actually preached this last Sunday at Ashford, um, but I'm going to try to mix it up, Roman and Lauren, so that you're not hearing the same stuff. Um, the reason I'm preaching it again is, um, A, because it makes my job easier, I can preach the same sermon twice, but B, specifically because I believe that this is a timely message, not just for one congregation, but for all congregations worshiping here at Kingdom City under this roof. This is a message that I think is important, it's timely, and what I'd like to do is offer three gifts through this message, three gifts that come from the first chapter of Ephesians. These three gifts, you can find them in your notes if you are note takers, might be helpful to look there. The first gift is grace and peace. The second gift that I bring to you today is blessing, or a sense of blessing. And the third gift is a mystery, a mystery. So first, grace and peace. Second is blessing. And third is a mystery. These are the three gifts that I bring to you this Sunday morning. And after that, we'll partake of communion. It is the first Sunday of the month, which means it's communion Sunday here for us here at Woven. Um, I'm about to dive into, before I get into that first heading, let me just give you some introduction to what we're about to dive into. We did a series here uh, about a year ago through the book of Ephesians. This is going to recap, but it's going to draw deeper into some of that stuff. The verses, the first 10 verses that we're about to read in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians is actually the longest run-on sentence in the entire New Testament. It's the longest run-on sentence. In the English, you'll see a couple of sentence breaks there because the English translators have to break. It just, Paul's thought, it, it's, it's very complex. So in order to make it clear, that they break it into a couple of sentences. But in the original language, there is not a single period in sight. 202 words railroaded together just clause after clause, um, parenthetical comments, and all these clarifying statements. And Paul just, he's, he's kind of like a very distracted teacher that's trying to get all this stuff out. And somewhere inside there, there's a message. A message that's so important that I preach it to Ashford last Sunday, but also to us at Woven today. It's like um, a rocket, if you've ever been to NASA, NASA Space Center, we are, the, we are Space City. We have a basketball team named after the rockets. Well, what you have in a rocket, if you've ever heard this, it's 95% fuel, uh, hot air, bluster, and the payload is only 5% of the weight. How many of you have heard that before? It's like a small percentage of the rocket. Well, that's kind of like what we're about to read. There's a lot of bluster. There's a lot of um, wordiness, a lot of magnificent language that Paul uses. But the purpose of all of this language is to, de is to deliver this small snippet. There's a payload here. And I want, to, I want to direct challenge you to look for the payload as we read these verses. See if you can identify what the payload is. It's in there. It's small. It's about 5%. But that is the valuable part. Everything in this long run-on sentence, 95%, is designed to get the payload from point A to point B. Paul is communicating something here. 
with many words. And so let's go ahead and look at the first verse of Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians starts off with Paul saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you are looking at your Bible right now? So a couple of people are looking at your scriptures, and this is important. I might even say I want us to be a Bible-bringing church. It's on your device. That's fine with me. But how many, of your, how many of your translations, how many of your Bibles have the word at Ephesus, those words, in brackets? Like this, boom, at Ephesus. There are some translations that have that. And there's a reason for this that some of the earliest copies of the, of the letter to the Ephesians actually don't contain that phrase, at Ephesus. And so students of the scriptures, they're wondering, what is this about? There is a very strong theory. I'm not going to get into the details. But a very, very strong theory, I am sold over, um, that this letter was originally intended as something called an encyclical and encyclical, encyclical. Encyclical letters were not just addressed to one congregation, the Ephesians. I happen to think that the copy that we have, the, the, the one that is in our Bibles, is, is just the letter that, that the Ephesians had in their library. Therefore, we call this a letter to the Ephesians. But an encyclical letter was intended to be distributed to all of the churches, all of the churches throughout the known world. And so Paul writes this letter using magnificent, using the best proper language that he can. That's why the language sounds like that. He does that so that it can reach the broadest audience, and it's also intended to reach all of the churches. So if you've ever heard, how many of you have ever heard this statement? Don't take it personal. It's not meant for you. It's just a broad. Actually, the gospel of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, this was designed to be taken personally. It was designed, I believe, to be read to the saints who are at Ephesus, to the saints who are at Laodicea, to the saints who are at Macedonia, to the saints who are at Rome, to the saints who are at Galatia, to the saints who are in Houston, Texas, at Woven Covenant Church. The holy and beloved to the saints. Are you a saint today? Are you the holy and the beloved? Then this letter is for you. And I believe 10,000 years from now, when we have a church on the rings of Saturn or Jupiter somewhere, it, it, it will still be applicable. This letter will still be applicable to all churches across all regions and across all time. Thousands of years later, this is a message that will still stand to the church at Ephesus, to the church in Rome, to the church at Woven. So let's dive into the first gift that I bring to you today. The first gift is grace, and I'll throw in a two-for-one package and give you an extra one. Grace and peace. Grace and peace is the first gift that I'd like to bring to you. We see right away in verse 2, Paul launches into these very familiar words that he uses again and again. Grace to you. Grace to you. Now these words, grace to you, grace to you, you think they're just kind of a toss out. That's just peop what people in the church say. I happen to think they are more than that. They are more than that because in all of Paul's letters, these same words in the same exact order, they appear again and again. 
I think he's quite intentional when he starts off with these words, grace to you. How many of you have read anything that Paul has written before? Any of Paul's letters in the New Testament? So you've read some of Paul's stuff. And you might be aware that for Paul, grace is a big deal. The the idea of grace is a big, big deal for Paul. And therefore for us as well. And here's the thing, for Paul, I believe that grace was such an important part of his theology that it finds its way in small ways, it works itself out. So for example, I am a father to two children. My, uh, my son, I think my daughter is, is in the children's ministry, they're here. The question is, as a preacher of grace, will my children look back and say, dad was a gracious man? In his dealings, he was a gracious. Now, we have some young fathers, some young mothers here. And you ask yourself, will I be remembered as somebody whose life was marked by grace? I think Paul uses that word intentionally. I think there's a little word play here. Standard letters in Greco-Roman times did not start off with the word grace. They typically started with another word that sounded very familiar not grace, but grace, not, not, not grace. Greetings is how they started their letters. Greetings. G-R, greetings, but instead he writes grace. There's a little twist. And we see this in the Greek as well. The standard Greek greeting was kairain, kai alpha rho, kairain. But instead of kai alpha rho, he says charis, kai alpha rho charis. Anybody have a friend named Karis? Karis means grace. Karis means grace. So there's a little twist, a little play on words that Paul does here. Because that's what Paul does. Everything he does, everything he says in Colossians, in Colossians 4, he says, let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. And in little ways, he works out his grace. Instead of saying the way the rest of the world says, greetings, he says, grace. The standard operating procedures of the world, I want that report on my desk by 9 a.m. tomorrow. Or how would you like your meal served? Or what's your name so I can write it on the coffee cup? But instead... He twists all of his interactions with a tinge of grace, just enough. You get your coffee cup back and your name is all misspelled or something. But what would it be if you got your Starbucks drink and on the, on the, on the cup there was just a touch of grace, Merry Christmas, or grace to you, or something. Something in your engagement that seasons it with salt. It communicates, I am a Christian, number one. And it communicates, number two, I'm going to do things a little bit differently from the way the rest of the world steps. I saw this video on somebody's Facebook feed. I don't remember who. It might have even been somebody here. And a woman was at a drive-thru, fast food. And she was second in line. And she was looking at her phone. And the car in front left with their cheeseburger, and they paid, and they moved on. And she didn't move up, and the car behind her really was like, I'm hungry. I'm hangry. So they leaned on the horn, and she was like, my goodness. And you know what she did? She got out of her car, 
and she punched the other person in the face. Standard, standard world operating procedure, right? That's not actually what she did. But that's what the world does. That's the standard operating procedure. What she does instead is she pulls up and she pays her bill and says, the person behind me, what did they order? And she pays their bill too. Season every interaction with salt. It communicates, I am a Christian, and it communicates, I don't do things the way the world does it. The way I treat my interns, the way I relate to my students, the way I, I react in, 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 in the retail industry or in the service industry, the way I oversee my employees, the way I run my business, the way I lead my company, it's different. Why? Because A, I am a Christian, and B, I march to a different beat. I season everything with salt. Grace to you, not greetings to you. Paul says, grace to you. So turn to somebody right now. And I'd like you to just practice that and say, grace to you. Look him in the eye. Grace to you. But that's not all. It's not just grace. We think it's all grace. We think Paul is only about grace. I want to put forth that Paul is also about something else. Peace. In the second half of verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I challenge you. Look up everything Paul has written. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians. They are all worded in the same way, in the same order. Grace and peace to you. And I understand this as the great one-two punch. The left hook and the right hook and you're out. Just I, I watched Creed last night. So you're going to see boxing analogies coming in everywhere today. It's the left and the right hook. It's the 50%, the 50% grace and peace. Now somebody would say, Pastor, no, no, no. Paul was 95% grace. No, Paul was grace and he was also peace. And this is important because the word peace, in Paul's mind, remember, Paul is Jewish, living in a Greco-Roman world. What is he thinking when he thinks the word peace? He's thinking shalom. And for him, that word shalom means a lot. Shalom is not just, I feel spiritual peace. I feel, I feel inner peace. No, no, no. For Paul, that word shalom, the, the, the Hebrew idea of shalom, when, when Jews talked about shalom, they meant, are you safe? When they say shalom aleichem, do you have peace? They're asking you, are you are you healthy? Are you fed? Are you whole? Is your family okay? Do you have a roof over your heads? So during Hurricane Harvey, if somebody's texting you and you're being bombarded with texts and they're saying, Shalom Aleichem, do you have peace? Do you have peace? And you're like, yeah, I have peace. I have spiritual inner peace. Meanwhile, the roof is open. There's water up to your waist. And, and, and horrible things are happening. No, you don't have peace. You don't. Because shalom is not just spiritual peace. Shalom is talking about physical well-being. It's talking about holistic well-being. It's talking about are you unmaimed? Are you unharmed? Are you safe? It's like it's the third watch of the night and the watchman cries out from the, the walls in the, in the old city and he says, shalom, there is peace in the city. There are no marauders. There are no advancing armies. We have peace. In the Jewish mind, peace was 
bigger than just this spiritual thing. And oftentimes we read Paul and we just read the spiritual thing, the grace side, the spiritual inner peace, but we miss the important peace component, which is just important. The peace component talks about not just your spirit, me and Jesus, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace I've been saved. No, it talks about your community. It talks about everything. It talks about your safety, your body, your health, your well-being, your wholeness. That's important because that It's not the payload, but it hints at the payload that's coming. It hints, and I'll tell you when we're there, it hints at that payload that's coming. Many times we mistaken, we Christians mistaken the Christian gospel to just be about spirit, and that's it. Peace encompasses a much bigger realm. Hold that thought. The payload is coming. That's the first gift, grace and peace. But let's move on to the second gift that I have for you. The second gift is blessing. Blessing. So here in this second gift, we can see Paul in verse 3 unwraps this gift, and he's all excited. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you feel that? Paul is saying... You are blessed, blessed, blessed with every blessing. How many of you feel blessed? According to the latest statistics, only 43%, 43 43.85% of people in pews on any given Sunday feel blessed, and the rest feel unblessed, or feel somewhere in the middle. I made that statistic up. And the thing is, we come to church... And Paul talks with this magnificent language, like we have all these blessings, but we don't really feel blessed. We don't feel blessed. Oftentimes we feel a little bit beaten up by life. We feel like we've been in the ring a little bit too long. Here we go. We feel like we've taken maybe a couple of hits, one too many to the noggin. And the question is, where is that sense of blessing today? Where do I get this sense of blessing? Well, Paul continues in verse 4. He says, you're blessed. You're blessed with all these blessings because God chose you. God chose you in him before the foundation of the world that you would be holy. So you're chosen for a purpose. You're chosen to be holy and blameless. And then he continues in verse 5. God predestines you to adoption as sons through Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. You can see here is Paul's bluster. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. But you get this sense that Paul is connecting blessing to something else. Paul, I believe, connects blessing to identity. Your identity is that never-ending source of blessing. It's the place where blessing cannot be cut off. And even though you've gone the distance, and even though you've taken a lot of punches in the ring, you're able to get back and cry, Adrian, you're able to get back into the fight. Why? Because you have your sense of identity. You're able to dig deep and find it once again. You are chosen, is what he says. 
You are predestined and you are adopted. If I can just share with you a quick story um, that took place a while ago. I hope I'm not embarrassing anybody here in this room. Um, but um, martial arts is something that uh, my, my son got involved in. And uh, he, he did what I was not able to do, which was pass white belt in Taekwondo. And I lived vicariously through him. And I watched him work through Taekwondo. And I watched him work through sparring. And I know that this was hard, especially with a dad that's like, come on, fight. You know, like reliving all of my childhood. Like, you know, kick, punch. And um, I know that it was, it was hard work for, for our kids you know, we want them to succeed, and, and, and we, we encourage, maybe we push. And I know that sometimes the kids get tired. Sometimes they kind of find that their arms drag a little bit in the, in the ring. And I get that, because I understand sometimes that's like life. We get back in the ring, and I'm tired. But something happened at one point where one of the instructors approached my son, and he said, you have something, something good. You have something that I recognize. I want to choose you. You hear that word? That word sound familiar? Chosen? You're chosen. I want to adopt and bring you onto our competition team. You're destined because you're Korean. You have Taekwondo flowing through your veins and you eat it with that spicy cabbage all the time. It's in you. You're chosen. You're destined. You're called and I adopt you. What do you think happened the week after that when sparring came back around? Kicking a little bit higher, kicking a little bit harder, punching in a little bit more, yapping louder. I mean, I kid you not, I saw the eye of the tiger. I saw motivation, something that I can't, a parent can't, you know how hard it is for parents to try to inst- just get interested in this. Just, but the thing is, it comes from somewhere. Where does it come from? It comes from identity. It comes from calling. It comes from being picked, handpicked, selected. 43% of churchgoers on any given Sunday don't know that you are chosen. From thence comes your blessing. Your blessing and your sense of identity, your, your blessing comes from your sense of identity and knowing who you are in Christ. When you search the scriptures and you say, who am I? You know, I'm 42 years old. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I'm still asking questions of calling. What has Christ called me to? I'm going to scare you here. I'm going to tell you the truth. Christ never called me to go into ministry. I never received a call to ministry. But I received a clear, unequivocal call to follow. To follow. And that came to me when I was 20 years old, not even, uh, 17 years old, studying at the New School for Social Research in New York City, a place where you'd kill your faith, and confused and lost and not knowing if I could continue on as a Christian, and in the thick of all of those philosophers that I was raising, the voice of Christ saying, follow me, I love you, will you follow me? And and that bedrock identity 
of knowing that I was personally, existentially called to follow Christ, I could really go the mile. I could deep, dig down deep inside. I'm going to spoil the movie for all of you. You know, Creed Jr., he gets knocked out and he gets just, he's done. And Rocky, at 80 years old, Sylvester Stallone, 80 years old, he starts training. And he gets back and he starts, and he gets back in the ring and he defeats Drago's son. It's not what happened. But I kept waiting for that to happen. Wouldn't it be funny? Wouldn't it be so funny? I was thinking to myself, I love the movie, by the way. Um, I cried. But wouldn't it be so funny if, just like, just like Creed Sr., Creed Jr. gets put out of commission permanently, and Rocky says, oh, I got to do this, right? And he starts, you know, and he's dragging tires behind him. And he trains at 80 years old, and he defeats. It's just bizarre. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been funny? I mean, where do you dig? That, that's, the Rocky, that's, like the, that's the Rocky story. Somehow he's always digging down deep. Somehow he enters back into the ring. Somehow he goes the distance. He finds his fight again. Somehow he manages to do this. Where does that come from? Where does the ability to go the distance, to get back in the ring for another nine rounds, where does that come from? Because that's a metaphor for life. Why do we love the Rocky story? We love it because you feel like anybody can get back in the ring. If you just dig down deep inside, I'm here to tell you, you can't get back in the ring. You can't. You think you're Rocky and you're going to get back in the ring, you know. You can't if you don't know who you are. If you don't know who you are in Christ, if you haven't searched the scriptures enough to wrestle, who am I? What has Christ called me to? If you haven't heard the voice, then there, there is no nine rounds. It, the, game, the game won't last very long. Knowing who we are is the source of our blessing. See, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, has to be attached to verse 4. 3 has to be attached to 4. Because blessing, it's not, it doesn't come alone. It comes from identity. Verse 3 is the blessing. Verse 4 is the identity. You are called, chosen, adopted, predestined even. Those, just, those words mean nothing to me. Think about them a little bit. Think about them. What does that mean? You know, I want to encourage you as individuals, really, you know, to search your calling, to say, who am I? Who am I really? What's going to give me the strength to go another nine rounds? I did some counseling with, with some... with someone recently, not for me. It, it really comes down to identity. It really does. Knowing who you are. And if your identity is attacked, we're in trouble. Now here's the good thing. The good thing is this. Woven Church, in this place, in this Kingdom City experiment, I think we have a very strong sense of identity. You may not have memorized our vision statement. I certainly have. It comes up all the time. In, fa in fact, with Roman and Lauren here on the stage, I, I, the only thing I failed to mention was we, 
One of our mission priorities is holistic outreach. Holistic outreach. And in fact, we were talking about how can we not just give gifts out, but in future years even, even enable people to, to buy their own gifts at reasonable, really, really affordable prices. That's what you call a hand up, not just a hand out. This is holistic outreach. And for us as a church, we believe in holistic outreach. That's what we stand on. And our mission priorities are insightful teaching, intentional discipleship, holistic outreach for the purpose of desegregating Sunday and sanctifying Monday to Friday so that we could be a diverse church community for the greater Houston metro area. That's who we are. And in that identity, let me just say this. In that clarity of identity, we can truly find our place in this mishmash experiment that is Kingdom City, knowing who we are. Blessing and identity go hand in hand, but let me wrap it up and, and uh, come back, uh, finish up with a third gift here. So the first gift is grace and peace. The second gift is a blessing. Third gift, and this is indeed a gift, mystery. I want to finish with this third gift, a mystery. Listen to Paul here in verses 8 to 10, and listen carefully because the payload is here. Remember I told you about the payload. It's here. In verse 8, Paul says, In all wisdom and insight, God made known to us the mystery of his will. So, it's not going to end on a mystery. I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. Because God reveals to us this mystery according to his kind intention which he purposed with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. In other words, he was waiting for the right time. God was holding back. He was waiting for the right time. And at just the right time, he revealed this mystery in Christ. And here is the payload. Are you ready? In verse 10, the payload, that is, or you have a clarifying statement, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. If, God forbid, the rocket ship blew up, this would be the payload that would be lost. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Now, what in the world does that mean? I'm going to break it apart here. Just like on the space, just like on the rocket ship, that 5%, we can look at the components, maybe, maybe a third of it was for the International Space Station, and a third of it is a satellite, and the third is, is the personnel or something like that. Let me just break this up. What is it saying here in verse 10 that's so important? First of all, it says, the summing up. And this is a complicated word, but I will do my best to make it clear. Because I'm not alone in struggling with what this means. Some of your translations say very different things. Some translations in the NIV translates this to say to bring unity to everything. Here it says summing up. What is this word? The thing is the word there that Paul originally uses is a rare word. It's not commonly used. It's a word that makes the translator say, huh. What does Paul mean by that? It's a big word. And the intent of this word, anakephalio in the Greek, what it means is a sense of, of, can we summarize everything? 
and distill it and make it as simple and understandable in one common principle. In other words, when I preach, I try to distill the message with its purest essence so that everything can be summarized, everybody can understand it. It's one idea, it's one summarizing idea, it's one reconciling idea. I think that's a good translation, by the way. It's a reconciling idea. It's one thing that will reconcile everything. Now, for in his mind, Christ is the one who reconciles. So what Christ is doing is he's reconciling or summarizing everything. Just hang with me here. He's reconciling everything. What does it say? What exactly is he reconciling? All things is what it says. He's reconciling all things. Tapanta in the Greek. Now the way the language, the Greek language works is there are three, there, there, there are three ways that this can go. There's a male gender. This can be translated, God is reconciling all of his things. And the wives are like, yeah. Or it could say, God is reconciling all of her stuff. And the husbands are like, yeah. But it doesn't go male. It's not inflected female. It's inflected neuter. There is a neuter case. There's a neuter form. So it's not talking about his things or her things. It's not talking about just people things. The way that this word all is inflected is in the neuter, which I think talks about not just his things, her things, people things, but it things. Things. Material things. Things. So God is not just in the business of people stuff. Yes, he is. But he's also in the business of world stuff, of it stuff, of material stuff. And it clarifies, what does it say, things in heaven and things on earth. So God is reconciling, right? If you follow, if you see what I'm saying... God is in the business of restoring hearts. He's in the business of restoring souls. But he's also in the business of science and cities. God is working to save your soul for eternity. But he is also working today in economics. God is very interested about Sunday ministry. But God is also interested in medicine. He wants to hear your hallelujah, but he also wants to work in the humanities. God is interested in the cosmos, but he's also into the company and culture and community. God is all about spiritual bliss, but he's also about business. God is interested in shalom, but he's also interested in shalomberge. I need to work that in there. God is all about faith, but he's also about finance. He's about the divine. He's about downtown He's about glory, but he's also into gardening. God is about joy in the spirit and jobs in the community. Do you hear what I'm saying? That the message of Paul is not just Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace I've been saved. End of story. God's happy. I'm happy. Done. But God is in the business of reconciling the world, the cosmos, everything back to himself Going back to the Garden of Eden, rewinds everything where Adam messed up and Christ is the new Adam, making right what Adam made wrong. I think in Paul's mind, the arrival of Christ into concrete history was kind of like Neo, the one, entering into the matrix. What happened? The code all changed. Right? Like the fabric of the matrix, the 
fabric of the universe changed. And you're like, okay, Pastor Wayne, you're getting a little too philosophical. But understand, Paul was living, he was breathing the, 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 this air. I really think that in Paul's mind, Jesus entered. Yes, your heart changed. Relationships changed. But the whole world changed. Everything. The cosmos, the code, the code. It's like the code changed. You're like, you're like uh, you know, the... the uh, you know, the guys that are watching the screens, and you can see that everything's changed. I think what Paul is saying is that Christ enters, he brings grace, but he also brings shalom to the whole universe. Now, you see why this is a message that crosses all time and everywhere. Everything changes. All the code changes. The very fabric of the world we live in changed because Christ lived 2,000 years ago. Now here's the thing. One last thought. And I'm rounding third base. I'm going to come sliding into home on this. What is the mystery then? And this is where it's going to come home. I want to use um, somebody in our congregation as an example. Sue. She's not here today. But I've got to hear a little bit about Sue. I'm, I'm very interested in what goes on for people in the med center. By the way, let me just say this publicly now. For, for my schooling, I have to spend 25 hours um, doing a, a field study for, for, for people in the med center. So if I ask you and I interview you, that's actually quite intentional. And so Sue was sharing one day about how her work as, as a, 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 you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, as a cancer scientist, as a researcher, researcher. And what she does, I believe, uh, she works with protein enzymes looking for cancer cures. Yes, no, let's just say for the sake of illustration. And um, <clears throat> let's say Sue is doing her research and, and she, she did share at one point that sometimes she'll have a really discouraging day where, you know, all, all the experiments didn't pan out. You know, she lines them up, and if they don't work, it was, I guess, a dead end, a false trail. The theory didn't hold. But let's say one day Sue has her coffee, and she walks into the office, and she looks at something, and then she drops her coffee mug, and it smashes on the ground. And she looks again. She says, that can't be right. And then she punches the numbers. And it dawns on her that she, she might have just stumbled onto this theory that could change everything. Kind of like, you know, penicillin. Alexander Fleming quite mistakenly just let some mold grow in his lab. And then, boom, we have antibiotics. So let's say she comes up, she realizes this could not only win me a Nobel Prize, this could change everything. So Sue's like, oh my gosh, this is, this, is, this is huge, this is huge. She starts lining up all these experiments, and then she looks at the first experiment, she pauses, and she says, this is the first experiment. This is, this is the, uh, what's the word? Um, it's like the deal breaker. If this first experiment fails... I will know conclusively that the theory was wrong. 
And therefore, the rest, I don't need to do the rest. I'll just give it up. Give it up. It does, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But if the first experiment succeeds, there need to be more experiments along the way to fine-tune it. Penicillin wasn't developed overnight. But if the first experiment succeeds, the whole thing can work. The question is, we know what Paul's theory is. In the first ten verses, he presents his theory. His theory is Christ stepped foot on earth as a human being, a baby. We sang about it in Bethlehem. He didn't come like in the third heavens or come you know, descending in the spirit. He came in flesh. He changed everything. Big theory. Paul says Christ changes everything. That's his theory. But what is the first experiment What is the first experiment that will prove this whole thing works? We see this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. He says it quite explicitly. Quite explicitly. You can't get more clear than this. The mystery. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. People misread Ephesians, in my opinion. They say it's all about grace. But when you read Ephesians through, you'll be surprised how much he talks about Jew and Gentile interracial relations. What Paul is saying is, we have this big idea, and it will work, the whole thing can work, if Jews and Gentiles learn how to worship as one community in this new humanity that is called the church. If this new church, this multi-ethnic experiment works, my goodness, he's hopping excited. The whole thing can work. But if it doesn't work, then it's not, it's the, whole, the gospel, it's, it's not really going to come together. What is the experiment? What is the pilot project? What is the beta version? What is the first fruit? What is the test case? What is the, ex- what is the, the, the proof that the gospel works? The proof is when Jew and Gentile learn to coexist in one community. And if that works, and and if they are able to reconcile, then this reconciliation of all things, of all matter, of heavens and earth, it's going to work. It's going to work. I mean, do you hear what I'm saying? For some reason... In this season of my life, my work takes me to L.A. a lot for different, whether it's school, whatever. And the more I, I get to visit that city, the more I can see that, how different it is. It's an interesting place. And the more I also see the places of te- tension, in particular ethnic tension, I get to see the, the dividing lines. I get to see the the points where some communities overlap with others. I relive and I see the scenes. I remember the riots. I remember seeing Korean businessmen on the roofs of their, of their businesses carrying rifles. Can two communities get together? Can different people really get along? Sometimes I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. And those are the moments where it's very discouraging because then we realize maybe the gospel really doesn't work. 
But I still have hope. I still have hope that this experiment can work. I still have hope that Kingdom City, I have great hope, actually. I have hope that this person and this person can finally meet and reconcile. That is how we know the gospel comes together. That is how we know it works. Reconciliation, anakephalio, the summing up of all things in Christ. Big, profound theories, right? But so practical. Three things that I leave you with. Three applications. Three fill-in-the-blanks. The first one to think about goes back to grace, grace and peace. Remember, friends, season everything with salt. That's the first application. Season everything with salt. Why? Because by this they will know you are Christians. And because everybody loves being alt. I mean, I, I lived in Seattle for a spell. Everybody wants to be alternative. You want to be, you want to be really, really different? Reconcile. You want to be really, really different? March to a different beat. Season everything with salt. That's the first application. The second application that I leave you with is make your calling sure. Know who you are. Search the scriptures. Make your calling sure because from there you will have an endless Christmas. Blessings beyond, beyond anything you can receive. Make your calling sure. And the third and last application, work this first experiment. Work this first experiment. I'm not just talking about Kingdom City, yes. But I'm also talking about the relationships, the cross-cultural. I mean, I could have really just became the pastor of a Korean church. I could have. I think it would have been easier. But of course, my wife reminds me, you do things the hard, hard way all the time. But that's because that's the way I am. I'm testing. I'm testing. Does this work? Does the gospel work? Does the gospel, is the gospel true? That's why for me, I'm never satisfied to just do community just with people like me. Where's the fun in that? Where's the, where's the growth in that? I know the gospel is true because I can break bread. I can break bread. And I can be broken too. And I can grow. I can grow from you.